text we're in this morning is Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, the Holy Word of God says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me? Father, we ask that we would understand this text. We ask that we would see your glory better and be forever changed by it. Change our hearts, change our affections. We'll give you all the praise for it. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The government's orders couldn't be any more clear. Trample or be trampled upon. At its peak, the Japanese city of Nagasaki was basically the Rome of the Japanese empire. At one point, it had over 500,000 people who were Christians naming the name of Jesus. However, feeling threatened by the new religion's rapid growth and feeling like their culture was being lost, Japan's political leaders decided that it was necessary to purge the foreign religion from their society entirely. And so began the persecution of the Japanese Christians in the later half of the 16th century as Japan launched their long persecution of Christians as they rounded them up including 26 missionaries in Nagasaki in order to crucify them publicly before all the people. In 1614, a strict nationwide ban on Christianity was issued as the Japanese Inquisition, led by a man called the Great Inquisitor, began hunting down and killing Christians profusely for their faith. How? Well, for that, they got creative. For some, they would simply use their swords, and that would be it. For others, they would wrap them in straw and burn them alive, entire families. Others would be tied to crosses that were placed along the beach so that when the tide would come in, the waves would keep hitting them over and over for hours on end, sometimes even days upon end, before they finally killed them. However, the Japanese government eventually realized something. They realized that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so they realized it was not enough to just simply kill Christians. They must come up with a new solution. And the new solution was this, trample or be trampled upon. The Japanese government created this object here called the Fumi, a brass image that depicted Christ upon the cross, and they required every citizen to go through the practice of not only denouncing their faith publicly, but stepping upon this image in order to show their apostasy. And once wasn't enough. In fact, this became an annual event in Japanese culture where everyone was hauled out before the government authorities and they were required to step on the fumi. In fact, so many people stepped on it, and you can see it in this image here, that the, the face of Jesus himself upon the cross, which was once clear, 
became wore away from all the feet that would continually step upon this image. Christians, though, who refused to step upon the fumi, they weren't killed, though, at least not right away. Instead, they were tortured in horrifying ways until they would recant and denounce their faith. Sometimes their family members would be tortured, and they wouldn't be. And they said, if you would simply denounce, we'll let them go. Sometimes they would hang Christians upside down over pits filled with excrement, which would have eventually killed them due to the massive pressure that would build up. But instead, they mercifully cut slits in their temples, which wasn't so merciful, since it would be excruciatingly painful as every drop of blood would continue to drip out. But that actually extended their life. In fact, it was said that the government would have doctors on hand so that if a Christian started seeing like they were passing out and they were passing away, that they would come along, get them alive, get them back in better shape so that they could endure more torture. And why? All for the purpose of getting them to give up and recant their faith, of which many of them did. For 200 years, the Christians in Japan lived like this, being hunted by their government for the great crime of professing the name of Jesus. But at the end of the 19th century, thankfully, Japan eventually decided to change its ways as they opened their border to other cultures and banned the practice of of the fumi, and Christians were then no longer a hunted people group. And you know what's remarkable about what happened when this change occurred in the Japanese culture? Over 20,000 Christians stepped forward who had been living in hiding. Christians who had refused to abandon the faith and live in fear. Sure, it was a fearful thing, but they refused to live in fear. They refused to turn away from Christ, even in the face of such horrifying danger and suffering. As American Christians, this if you're like me at all, this makes you feel a little bit guilty a little bit, doesn't it? Like, would I do that? How would I respond in this kind of a culture? American Christianity is quite a different thing, is it not? The question we have hearing about this is, how could they live this way? How could they think this way? How could they not fall to their knees, trembling with panic-stricken fear? Does that make you wonder that? I'll tell you the answer how. It's because of this. They, for, they never forgot one of the most important truths. What is that truth? That truth is this. It's the truth Matthew has been telling us for eight chapters now, and it's that Jesus' church is king. The king. All these lesser kings are not the king. Christ is king. And because Christ is king, we can live in this sort of way. Church, this is the truth Matthew has been desperately trying to get us to understand. For the past 10 months in our study throughout this book, we've seen how Jesus came into this world. Why? To declare something loud and clear for all to hear. And it's that he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. In Matthew chapter 1, we saw this total power of our sovereign king. First off, we saw that he was the rightful heir of the throne because Jesus descended from King David, right? That's what the genealogy was all about. In Matthew chapter 2, we saw how Jesus wasn't just the king of the Jews, he was king of everybody else, which includes the whole world. And we see that as the other nations represented by the Magi, they come bearing gifts and worshiping him. These guys were kingmakers, and they come to the king of kings to recognize his absolute rule. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' baptism, what did that show us? 
it showed us that not only was Jesus the son of King David, he was the son of holy God, for he was God and is God. Not only was he the son of David, but he's the son of God, in whom, as the father said at his baptism, he was well pleased. And then in chapter 4, what do we see with Jesus? We saw his authority how? In the temptation in the wilderness, where he is king over sin and Satan. He did not fall. And Matthew just keeps going with this. This is his point. He's like, you guys are going to get this one way or another. Jesus is king, period. And I'm just going to keep rolling with this for 28 chapters. All right? In chapters 8 and 9, that's the whole point of the miracles. To show what? That Jesus is king, not just over the Jews, not just over the Gentiles, but king of all. King of everything. He's king over disease. He's king over demons. He's king over disaster, as we will see this morning with Jesus' calming of the storm. And this is a very, very helpful truth for us as Christians, right? Because our world, I don't know if you realize this, but you look around, our world's a pretty jacked up place. It's messed up, and you don't got to look very far to like see how messed up it is. We live in a world where you pick up the newspaper and you read so much about mothers who have killed their children. And also, if you don't see that, you don't need to read about it because they don't report on it, but mothers kill their unborn children on a regular basis. We have husbands who, in fits of rage, murder their wives. We have governments, as we just heard about with the Japanese people, who kill their people. They kill their citizens. And this is just the people problems we're talking about here, right? Because things on our earth are much more messed up. Our weather tries to kill us on a regular basis in certain areas especially if you live along the coast in an area that's below sea level, which I don't understand. But this is just the stuff we can see. We have little invisible bugs called viruses that try to kill us and sometimes do. And oftentimes, what do these little invisible bugs do? They lead us to live in fear. Even our bodies try to kill us as they develop diseases where the body basically goes haywire and stops working as it's supposed to and can eventually lead to our death. That's what cancer is. It's rapid overgrowth of cells that eventually leads to our death. And so with this messed up world we live in in mind, do you see what Jesus' miracles are showing us? These miracles, church, are a tiny little taste. They're an appetizer of the coming kingdom. They are a little taste of the king's kingly power. For one day soon, when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, you know what's going to happen? The king will rule over disease and sickness. The king will rule over the dead and raise the dead. The lame will walk. The blind will see. He will calm the seas. He will cast out the demons, as we'll see next week. There is a complete reversal through Jesus of what? Of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. That curse is what makes this world such an awful place. It's got its good, don't get me wrong. It's not as bad as it could be, but it's bad because of the curse and the curse of sin. And Jesus is coming to undo that curse through his kingly authority. The miracles of Jesus are an appetizer for our glorious hope that is coming. And you know what? It's a hope, as Paul tells us, makes our current sufferings look like nothing at all. Nothing at all. Not a big deal, right? That's what Paul says. Those are his words, not mine. He's like, yeah, these are bad. And Paul went through the baddest of the bad, but he's like, as bad as that was, I've had a glimpse of the glory that's coming under this king's authority, and it is is nothing. I forgot about it all. 
what a king Christ is. That's Matthew's point. And when we remember what a king Christ is, that Jesus is the king, the king, not a king. Church, do you know what that means? That means we can face any storm that comes our way, and we can face it without trembling, without fear. However, the reverse of this is also true. When we forget that Jesus is king, we will live in fear. And so the question this morning that we must ask is, how can we prevent ourselves from forgetting that Jesus is king and living in fear? Well, as our passage this morning is going to show us, there are five things that we must not forget, and here they are. We must not forget God's caution, God's control, God's closeness, God's coming, or finally, God's calm. Let's look at that first one. If you have your Bibles, open them this morning, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8, and let's begin looking at verses 24 and 25. Fear forgets that Jesus is king by forgetting God's caution of the storm. Before we jump into this first point, let's set, let's set the narrative uh, stage here for kind of what's happening. Okay, so, so far, Jesus just got done teaching a whole bunch. He healed some people. It was pretty remarkable. And him and his disciples, they get in this boat, as verse 24 says, and then what happens? Big storm, like super big storm, arose on the sea, so much so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And the sea that Matthew is speaking of, and we've talked about this before, this is the Sea of Galilee. It's basically a massively huge lake. You guys know of any massively huge lakes as Minnesotans? Yes, you do. Superior. All right, this is a massively huge lake. Okay? And to understand how severe the storm was, you've got to understand the topography here. Okay? What you have with this lake, this lake is 700 feet below sea level in a basin that's surrounded by these hills, by these mountains, and then right next to it, there's this big mountain called Hermon. All right? I don't know who Hermon was, but that's what the mountain was called, which is nearly 9,200 feet above sea level. All right? This is like airplane level flying distance, and it's rapid. It's a quick dive down to that. Does that make sense? Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level. Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet above sea level. That's like 10,000 feet we're talking about here. Okay? And who here knows what happens when cold air hits warm air at a rapid speed? Bad weather. Really bad weather if it's fast enough and the difference is that great. And so when it's bad enough, you get the furious squall that Matthew mentions in this chapter. So here's how this furious squall works. The cold air up there comes, that's soaring around about 10,000 feet, comes flying down to the lake. It hits that warm air, which from the pressure shift that's caused, it comes flying down like a plane out of the sky, which causes these terrible storms. And sometimes this would happen so quickly that even experienced sailors, like Jesus' disciples, many of them were, it would catch them off guard, right? And these were bad storms that they could get caught in. Just to give you an idea of how bad this storm actually got, the Greek term that Matthew uses for furious squall actually can be used to, like, it's for hurricane. That's the terminology he's using here. This is basically a little hurricane on the lake is what's going on here. So this is not like, you know, you're out on the lake here in Minnesota, you know, and kind of, oh, man, there's little bumps here. You know, it's nothing like that, not even close. This is basically a hurricane. That's the picture you got to have in your mind. So this hurricane suddenly hits their boat, and it's at night, which makes it more terrifying, all right? And Jesus is down there doing what? He's asleep. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Why was Jesus asleep in the bottom of the boat? Because he was tired. You got to go to seminary to know that answer, right? (laughs) 
He was tired. Jesus was the God man, right? And he got tired like you and I do. Look what verse 24 says. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. I like what Mark, how Mark puts it. He says that the disciples, they came and they were like, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Which the implication of that is, you must not. You're asleep here. If you cared about us, you'd be up doing something about it. And before we uh, judge too harshly to their response, we're not any different, are we? Sometimes I'm sitting there in life, minding my own business, and suddenly a major problem comes up in my life, and I start thinking the exact same way. Don't you? It's like, God, do you not see what's going on here in my life? This is a huge problem. This is furious squall level problem. Where are you at? Do you not care? I could use your help here. But do you know why we think this way? Why, do you think that, why is it that we think that way? Because we have wrong expectations. Isn't that why? I don't know about you, but you ever, have you ever had somebody come to you and they're like, I got to tell you about this movie. This is like, you've seen good, I, whatever your favorite movie is, get ready to make that not your favorite movie because this is the best movie I have ever seen. This is amazing. You have to watch this like now. Anybody ever had that happen before? And then you go to watch the movie and you're like, okay, that was okay, but your expectations you set for me were now way up here and it didn't meet it because you told me this was the best movie ever and it wasn't, okay? So you're immediately disappointed, right? Even though the movie was good, it drops in how good it was because you didn't have the right expectations. You expected the best and it wasn't the best. And you know, if we aren't careful, church, we can easily let our culture get us to think this way about God and his interactions with us. How? Because we live in a culture that tells us that we got to check out this religion thing. It's like the absolute best religion ever. Let me, I mean, whatever religion you got, this one's better. You got to see this. This is the best religion. It's the best way to God. It's the best life ever now, that sort of thing. But then we do check it out. And what do we shortly thereafter realize? It's not our best life now. Not even close. There's problems. There's storms. There's furious squalls that pop up. And so when that happens, then we had our expectations up here, not expecting problems and storms. And then when they come, we're severely disappointed. And so church, we have to have the right expectations. What is it that we should expect? Mucho furious squalls. Lots of them. Lots of them. For that is precisely what the caution flags along the beach have told us for a long, long time now. One of these caution flags is in James 1, 2, and it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet trials of various kinds. Oh, wait, no, it's not if, it's when, right? When you meet trials of various kinds. Doesn't sound like my best life now, does it? Another caution flag we read is Romans 8, 16 through 17, which says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What's that next word? Provided. That's another if. If we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Suffering is a part of the plan. Doesn't sound very fun though, does it? But it is. 
It's absolutely a part of the plan. And if you don't expect that, when the suffering comes along, you're going to be like, this is terrible. What did I sign up for here? If you forget that God has promised us storms in this life, you'll respond like the disciples did. How? With fear and dread. However, we must remember that we were cautioned about these storms. We were warned about them. We were told that they were coming. However, we can take comfort in knowing that God not only told us they were coming, but he is in full control over these storms. He will not allow them to last a minute longer than is necessary for his purposes. This leads us to our second point. Fear forgets that Jesus is king by forgetting what? One, God's God cautioned us of the storm. Two, God's control over the storm. Look at verse 26. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. Not calm, great calm. After hearing this, the disciples, after hearing the disciples cry for help, Jesus stands up, he looks into the eye of the hurricane, and what does he do? And it does shush. Not only does the storm stop, but what Matthew tells us happened is there's great calm. We're talking like glass lake level calm. All right? Like fisherman's dream. I don't know if that's is that calm. I think you want it calm when you fish. I don't know. I think you do. But it's, it's as calm as it could be. We'll say water skier's dream. It's super calm. That's what it does. And this is like, this is remarkable. This is a hurricane. And not only does it stop, the winds die down. But the waters themselves, which are splashing all about, calm as they could be. And do you see what this shows us? It shows us that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over everything, including the creation. Psalm 89.9 says this, You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. One more here, Hebrews 1, 3. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And what does this God do? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This means, church, that even as Jesus was asleep in that boat, he was still holding the molecules of the universe together by the power of his might. Which means every molecule, every atom is going where he sovereignly decrees that it's going to go. This also means that when he decrees that the molecules in the storm stop, what do they do? They stop immediately. So much so that there's great calm which also means that even the smaller storms in our lives that, we, that pop up, those too are under his control. And they will not last a minute longer than is necessary for us. Now, why does God permit these storms in our lives? Why are they necessary? Why doesn't he just prevent them entirely? This is a verse we're well familiar with by now, Romans 8.28. And we know for not everyone, those who love God, God's people, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so here's our challenge. You tracking with me this morning? Here's this challenge, all right? Here's how this applies to us. The question we must answer is, is our God big enough 
Is he powerful enough? Is he good enough? Is he loving enough to use the storms that come into our life for a good purpose? We said it's not going to last a minute longer than necessary. Well, what is necessary? That good purpose. God is using something. With, he's using these storms to bring about something good in us. So the question is, is God trustworthy? What if the storm takes our spouse? What if it takes your child? What if it brings horrifying persecution that you can't even imagine? Is God still good? Is he still praiseworthy? Is he still the King of kings and Lord of lords? Church, even if it seems like God is slow to act, we must remember he often lets the storm rise and the boat begin to sink before he acts. And he does this because he's using these storms in our lives for a purpose that is so much greater than we can possibly fathom. This is something the disciples forgot, which is why they weren't very happy about how long it took Jesus to calm the storm, right? They woke up and they're like, hey, Jesus, do you even care? In which Jesus looks at him as like blinks twice and is like, wait, what? Are you serious? Do I, do I even care? I'm, I'm with you in this boat right now. You realize that? You realize I don't have to be? Why are you so afraid? Why do you still have no faith? So why did they have no faith? It's because they forgot that God was with them in the midst of the storm, which leads us to our third point. Fear forgets that Jesus is king by forgetting God's caution of the storm, God's control of the storm, but third, God's closeness in the storm. Every December, as Christians, we celebrate Christmas. Great holiday. And this holiday reminds us of a wonderful, wonderful truth. The truth of Emmanuel. What truth is this? Well, we sing it every year in the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which goes like this. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The remarkable truth of Emmanuel is this. It is that God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. When we remember then that God is with us, that he promised to never leave us or forsake us, then and only then can no storm phase us. Even though the waves will be crashing around us, even though our boat is filling with water, if we remember Emmanuel and that God has warned us of this storm and that he's with us in this storm, we will trust him. We will not fear. We will remember that he's not asleep. We will remember that he's not unaware of our trials, for the God of the universe, our Emmanuel, is with us. Now, is that a comfort? Yes. However, as with the disciples, it don't start with a comfort. Because as Mark tells us, they responded how? With great fear, which leads us to our fourth point. Fear forgets that Jesus is king by forgetting God's caution in the storm, God's control over the storm, God's closeness in the storm, and fourth, God's coming storm. In verse 41, the fear the disciples had for the storm is replaced by an even greater fear, as Mark tells us, and it is a fear of being what? Realizing Emmanuel, that realizing we are in God's presence right now. That's a terrifying thing. 
Because as fearful as a raging hurricane or tornado might be, that is but a small taste of the real power that lies behind it. As we read at the start of our worship service from Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. You realize that nature's power, as severe as it can be, is but a small version of God's power? It's just on loan from God. Just a little glimpse of it. And this is why the disciples were terrified by seeing that power standing before them in the boat. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey them, they asked. And the answer to that question is this. This is the God who laughs in the face of the storm. As we often sing here, O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space. His chariots of what? Wrath. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. That's a terrifying image, right? That's not like the Christmas manger, cuddly Jesus type stuff. This is terrifying Jesus stuff. The terrifying truth of this is, is that one day, very, very soon, Jesus is going to return in his chariots of wrath as the deep thunder clouds form and dark will be his path on the wings of the storm as he comes with infinite power as a holy God to judge a sinful world. You believe that? The disciples did. And that's why they were terrified when they saw that this holy God, this all-powerful holy God, stood before them in their very boat. Only a sinner who is completely out of their mind wouldn't be terrified by God's presence. Which is why in Luke chapter 5, what does Peter cry out when he realizes who Jesus was? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And why did Peter say this? Because Peter understood he was a sinner and that God was holy. And this holy and perfect God Peter understood, will one day rightly judge sinners with the full power of his sovereign might, with a power that makes the winds of a hurricane look like a tiny little household fan. That's the kind of power we're talking about. Isaiah 2.12 says this, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter the caves and the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship. The moles into the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. And one more, Hebrews 10, 31 says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. The disciples entered the storm, fearing the storm. But as they left, they left fearing the Lord of the storm. 
This leads us to our final point. Fear forgets that Jesus is king by forgetting God's caution of the storm, God's control over the storm, God's closeness in the storm, God's coming storm, which is his wrath, and fifth and finally, God's calm for the storm. Christ is both the fury of the storm and the calm for the storm, which is why Proverbs 1 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because once the Lord is your fear, only then, church, can he become your comfort. Only then can you take refuge in him. In Genesis 31, this is a remarkable truth. The name Jacob uses to refer to the Lord is quite unusual. He refers to God as the fear. That's the title. That's the name. God, he calls him the fear. The fear of Isaac is what he uses. Now, how is that comforting? Because he uses it in a comforting way. So how is that a comfort for us? Well, it's comforting because only once the Lord is your fear can he become your comfort. I was reading Isaiah chapter 8 this week, and it stuck out to me, this concept of the fear, calling God the fear. And Isaiah does the same thing. He says, Do not call conspiracy all that the people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Right? They had an imminent army coming in. They were terrified about this. Okay? And he goes on and he says, But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And then what happens? He will become your sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So you have two two options here. He's either your fear where he's your dread or he's your fear where he becomes your hope. Because if he's not your fear in a way where he becomes your hope, one day that fear will come and you will dread his coming. There is no question about this. And so church, don't miss how significant this is. This means is that we have a fear that drives out all other fears. We have a fear that becomes our comfort, that can become our sanctuary, that can become our peace. So do you want that kind of comfort? Do you have that kind of comfort? I can tell you this, you won't have that peace if Jesus is simply your life coach, if he's just your advisor, you know, kind of your buddy, that kind of thing, right? You won't. Not at all. For it is only when Jesus is first your fear, as he was for Jacob, that he can become your hope and joy that casts out all of the lesser fears in your life. And when that happens, you know what happens to you? You sing as the psalmist did. Psalm 5, 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down in your holy temple. How? In the fear of you. And that's not a negative connotation there. That's an excited, worshipful connotation. Show me a church filled with worldly fear, and I will show you a church that does not fear the Lord. Show me a church that is terrified of viruses, that is terrified of elections that is terrified of government overreach and is terrified of a culture that is fully embracing moral decay of a high order. And I will show you a church that does not tremble before God's majesty, power, and worth. For a church that is filled with worldly fear does not take sin seriously at all. They do not take holiness seriously at all which is all the result of a people who do not have the peace of God at work in their life. However, 
Show me a church that rightly fears the Lord, and you will show me a church that doesn't just embrace and bear through the storm, but smiles in the face of the storm. Why? Because they're masochists who like pain? No. It's simply because of this, because they know that Jesus is king, and consequently, even the gates of hell will not prevail against them. And if the gates of hell are not going to prevail against us, what can? Nothing. Nothing, as Paul says in Romans 8, will separate us from the love of God. Not a single thing. Once we realize this as a church, what does it do? It spurs us on to live boldly without fear as lambs amongst wolves because the fear of God cancels out all other fears. Ultimately, why does our fear in God result not in dread but delight? Why and how does that happen? Well, because of this. Because our God, who is the God of the storm, is also, by grace, because of the cross of Jesus, our Savior from the storm. It's that simple. And he's our Savior who suffered through the fury of the storm. What was that storm? It was God's wrath. He suffered through it so that we might be spared from the ultimate storm, which is the full coming soon fury of God's wrath. You realize that God's wrath is the only storm that can actually destroy you? It's the only one that can. And we can be saved from that, from Christ. Upon the cross, Christ suffered the full force of God's wrath that you and I rightly deserved. Upon the cross, the storm of God's wrath crushed him for our iniquities so that we might one day live forever without fear and without dread. Luke one fifty says this, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This morning I ask you, are you living in fear of the storm? Or are you living in fear of the God of the storm? Those are the only two options. If you haven't come to fear the God of the storm, then I tell you this morning before you leave, why won't, won't you just trade in your fear for the fear? The fear of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The only one who can calm all other fears? Isaiah 12, 2 says this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. May we as the people of God be a people who live furiously in a world that is so full of fear, so full of dread, knowing that the blood of Christ has canceled out for us once and for all, all reasons to fear. Father, I thank you for this text. I ask, Lord, that we would live by this, that we'd be forever changed by it. Lord, I pray for the one here who is struggling with a storm in their life that they're dealing with. I pray that they would behold the man upon the cross, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the one who is God, the son of the living God, and who one day will come with the full fury of God's wrath upon this earth. So, Father, I pray that we would kiss the Son, lest we perish in his way. Psalm 2 calls us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing this morning?